Beloved, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and uh, this morning we continue our series. We are in sermon number 80 uh, in our series on Romans, uh, the book of Romans, and um, this morning we come to verses 33 and 34. Uh, So would you please uh, turn there and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We will focus in on verses 33 and 34, but I will begin reading this morning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Amen. As far the reading of God's word, would you pray with me? O Lord, may our hearts be illumined by your spirit in this, in these few moments as I preach your word. Would you give us clarity of mind? Would your spirit minister to us and apply Christ to us afresh this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What a comforting section of Scripture. Most Christian believers at one time or another have struggled with maintaining a personal assurance of God's love and salvation. Most Christians have battled spiritual doubt at some time and in some measure. In fact, it's more common than many might think. And it's true that there are those who struggle with assurance and they think they're the only one. That's what the devil does. He likes to isolate and make you think things that aren't true. But it's more common than you might think, those struggling with spiritual doubt. And this is especially true when life gets hard, when life brings unexpected hardship. We can begin to question his presence, his promises, and his protection. Christians struggling with an assurance of God's love is nothing new, of course. And as long as there is suffering in the world and remaining indwelling sin in our hearts, Christians will question God and even at times doubt Him. Beloved, let me ask you a question. Have you ever doubted God's love and salvation promises? Have you ever doubted them? Have you ever wondered if God has abandoned you? It's important to understand that these kinds of thoughts sometimes arise in the hearts of true believers, of genuine Christians facing fiery trials and hardship. When, for example, a beloved child or a spouse dies, when a terminal cancer strikes, when a job is lost, when senseless shootings occur, or when persecution breaks out. Affliction and suffering 
can foster doubt. It can cultivate despair and cause us to think that we've been forgotten. We see this sense of spiritual dereliction expressed in Psalm 88. In verses 1 through 5, the psalmist writes this, O Lord, God of my salvation. So that's how he begins. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol or to the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, the slain, those that are slain and in the grave, like those whom you remember no more and are cut off from your hand. Cut off from God's hand. Verse 14 says this, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Trials and suffering can undermine, can challenge Christian assurance. But dear ones, it's not only suffering that can cause true Christians to lack assurance of God's love and presence. Sometimes feelings can deceive us. Sometimes our feelings can deceive us. It's interesting that in the so-called triumph of the modern self, it's feelings, it's the way we feel that's meant to be that, that, that people are saying should be that which leads us and drives us and informs us and helps us to understand reality, our feelings. Really? But sometimes we as Christians can lack assurance because of our feelings deceiving us. Our feelings can deceive us into thinking that God doesn't really love us, that God doesn't really care, that he's abandoned us in some way. We can even feel like this when life is going relatively well. But here's the thing. Though trials may at times cause us to doubt God's love and presence, and our feelings may at times tell us that God has left us, the fact is, which I, in the name of Christ, declare to you this morning, the fact is God's love for us in Christ is always steadfast. His presence by His Spirit is always near us and always in our hearts. And His promises are always true. Dear ones, the believer's assurance may fluctuate and doubts may come, but God's love always stays the same. It doesn't get greater one day and less the next for you, depending on how you are performing. God's love is the same yesterday, today, and forever because God is love and He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's love does not fluctuate for His redeemed children. Romans 8 teaches us this. Romans 8 teaches us that His saving purposes are fixed They don't fluctuate and change like everything else in our lives. We tend to project onto God our own lives, our own situations, our own struggles. But God, thankfully, is not like us in that way. And His purposes are not like the world in which we live. 
Beloved, this is gospel truth for every weary and troubled soul here this morning. It's gospel truth that the Apostle Paul so marvelously declares throughout Romans chapter 8. Why, why does he declare it? Why does Paul say all that he does in Romans chapter 8? It is chiefly to dissuade doubt in the hearts of believers. It's to dissuade doubt in the, in the hearts of suffering believers, to build up the assurance of God's love in their hearts, and to provide the comfort that only the Holy Spirit can bring. I mean, it's extraordinary to be in a place of pastoral leadership and to look out onto a congregation and to know, quite specifically, the burdens that you carry, the trials that you face. And Romans chapter 8 is meant for you this morning. Dear Christian, do not doubt God's love for you. Do not doubt his presence with you. Do not doubt his promises, for they are true. They are true. You'll remember from last time that Paul presents five rhetorical questions in order to highlight God's unshakable love for his people. Uh, we've looked at the first three from verses 31 and 32. Look with me there in verse 31 again. The first question that he asks is, what then shall we say to these things? We uh, considered last week, this is like us saying, what can I say? When a marvelous gift is given to us, we say something like this, what can I say? What can I say? This is uh, like that. Uh, Paul is saying, what then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? What then shall we say to the fact that we've been set free from the law of sin and death? What then shall we say to the truth that we are co-heirs with Christ and that His Holy Spirit indwells our hearts and that God is our Abba Father? What then shall we say to the fact that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory that awaits us? What then shall we say to the fact that when we groan in this present age, we do so with the hope of the gospel running through our veins? What then shall we say to the divine promise that those whom God predestines, he also calls and also justifies and also glorifies? What then shall we say to all of these glorious things? Are we not left speechless in the presence of God? Are we not astonished at all that God has done and is doing for us? Doesn't this strengthen our assurance of God's love for us? He's done all of these things. Imagine in, in a human relationship, another person just blessing you over and over and over and over and over again, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and, and, and at one point, perhaps, there's a list. You know, my, my late father-in-law was so kind and gracious uh, to us. Um, and every time he would do something that was just extraordinary, extraordinary, uh, he'd say, well, we'll put it on the tab. We'll put it on the tab. And it was a fun sort of playful joke because there was no tab. Thankfully, it'd be really big. 
But this is what the Lord has done for us in the most glorious of ways. Over and over and over, he shows us what he has done for us, what he's doing for us, and what he shall do for us. How can we doubt his love? He then goes on to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Again, a rhetorical question, which the obvious answer is no one and nothing. In other words, if, or better yet, a translation would be since, since the sovereign God of the universe is for us and he has proven he's for us, what opposition can prevail against us? What enemy can vanquish us? Of course, the answer is none. The third question. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's Paul's argument from the greater to the lesser, which he does elsewhere in the the epistle to the Romans. If God spared not his own son, if God gave his own son over to die for our sins, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, give us everything we need for life and godliness? Even hard times. Because God gives us those hard times, those as one Puritan called it, those severe mercies in order to humble us and sanctify us and draw us more and more into conformity to Christ. And so in these verses, we have wave upon wave of the Lord's unshakable and reassuring love in Christ wash over us. I remember going out in front of the Emmanuel AME Church to sing and to pray with Christians from all over the country in 2015. There was such heartache and devastation surrounding the, the horrible event of the shootings of these dear Christians in a prayer meeting in a prayer meeting. And going out there, I was so moved by the prayers, by the singing, by the choirs who came into town just to sing. And at one point, after a couple of hours, I, I, re- I realized nobody had read Scripture. There was no Scripture being read. There was some Scripture being sung, but none being read, no words of encouragement. And so I, I uh, went forward hoping people wouldn't think I was about to sing. But I said, I feel led to read some scripture. And they said, go on, go on. And I read Romans 8. I read the entirety of Romans 8. And of course, coming to verses 31 through 39, it's this crescendo of of grace upon grace and assurance upon assurance of God's love and presence with us, even in the worst of times. It's what the Lord does in reminding us of his promises. And so it goes on to a fourth rhetorical question, which we'll look at uh, this morning. And it's really taken in two parts. That fourth question is really in two parts. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect and who is to condemn? It's part of the same thought. Look with me again at the beginning of verse 33. 
the apostle writes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, again, remember the context. In this chapter, Paul, being a good pastor, is seeking to encourage and to reassure God's suffering people. He declared in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then look in verse 23. He states that while Christians groan, they do so with the hope of the resurrection. And then he says in verses 26 and 27 that when we, in the midst of our trials, are at a loss for what even to pray. Have you ever been there? I don't even know what to pray. I am so devastated right now. I don't even know what to pray. I am at a loss for words. Maybe you pray something like this, Lord, help me. That's kind of what we see in the Psalms. Lord, help me. You don't know what to pray. And then we have this wonderful word that the Holy Spirit, who indwells our hearts, is interceding for us perfectly according to the will of God. Praying for us. So we know that when we are weak, that the Spirit is strong in us. These are all words of encouragement and comfort to a suffering pilgrim people. But Paul continues his encouragement knowing that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and is constantly seeking to undermine our faith. Indeed, in Revelation 12.10, it states that the devil accuses the brethren day and night before our God. Day and night, he accuses the brethren. We are the brethren. He's accusing us. Think of it. Day and night, the evil one accusing and slandering us before the throne of God And not only that, our consciences accuse us, burdened with the fact that our lives, that that in our lives we have not loved God as we ought or our neighbor as we should. We've fallen woefully short of the glory of God and his righteous standards. And so Satan accuses us. Our own consciences accuse us. Am I doing enough? The Christian often asks not thinking about God's gospel promises. So Paul continues his encouragement here, knowing that we need it. He wants to remind us that no charges will stick against God's elect in the courtroom of heaven. No charges will stick. Why? Well, he's already told us, hasn't he? God spared not his only son, but delivered him over for us all to die on the cross, to pay the debt of our sin, to satisfy his holy justice, and to deliver us from the wrath and the judgment to come. Look with me at verses 3 and 4, the first part of verse 4, and we see this stated so succinctly. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remember what Paul is saying here. He's saying not that the law in and of itself is weak, not that the law inherently is weak or bad, but the law is weakened in a sense that it cannot do for us what only God can do for us. The law is weakened by our flesh because our flesh cannot keep the law. That's the point here. And so God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What did he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. 
He condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? The flesh of Jesus Christ. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the law can't save us. Our performance of the law falls woefully short, cannot save us. But God does for us what we could not do for ourselves, what the law can't do for us, by sending his own son. He has done it. Christ Church, do you see why any charge against God's elect is futile? You see, if salvation was a salvation by cooperation, there would be something to the accusations. There would be something to it. And we would always have to worry, am I in or am I out? Am I a Christian or am I not? But here, we are reminded that every charge against God's elect is futile. Why the accusations of the devil and of our own consciences are in vain. The debt of our sin has already been paid. Christ paid it all on Calvary. He didn't just pay 99.9% of it and leave just a tiny percentage for us to do. Because if he did, we would be all be under God's judgment and wrath still. Because we can't even do that one tiny percentage as we ought. It falls short of God's standard, his righteous standard. But, but the debt of our sins has already been paid. Christ paid it all on Calvary. Redemption has already been accomplished in him. Justice has been satisfied. Hence, in Christ, by faith, we are no longer condemned in our sin. Now we are saved by his grace. Through faith in Christ, we are justified by God. Look with me again at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If you like to write in your Bible, you know, underline God. It is God who justifies. If anyone else but God was in that place of that sentence, we would not be able to have assurance or comfort this morning. But it is God who justifies. Indeed, it is God, Romans 3.26, who is both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so the argument goes, beloved, if the one true God has justified you, if the supreme judge of the universe has justified you, who can bring any charge against you? There is no higher court. There is no greater judge. The answer is no one. No one. No one can bring any charge against God's elect. And as John Stott states, quote, because God has chosen us and because God has justified us, all accusations fall to the ground. They glance off us like arrows off a shield, end quote. Now, here we learn that it is God who justifies us. There may be some who are unclear on this, this doctrine of justification, that doctrine upon which uh, the whole church stands or falls. If we don't get justification, we don't get Christianity, we don't get salvation. And so 
What is this justification? Well, um, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 33, has a, a wonderful, uh, again, succinct definition of this doctrine of justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Let's unpack that for a minute. First of all, justification is an act of God. It's not a process. It's an act of God. When someone is in union with Christ, God declares that person justified. There is no process of salvation, as it were, as is taught in other traditions, unbiblically, I might add. Justification is an act. It's not a cooperative process between us and God. We are not made right with God through our works. You understand that in the Roman Catholic Church, this was a big deal in terms of the Reformers and what they were preaching because in the Roman Catholic Church, it has always been this way. Salvation is a process. It begins at baptism And the way you live your life determines how long you will spend in purgatory before you go to heaven. And so that's why there's always mounds of guilt heaped upon someone who is in the Roman Catholic tradition because they feel they are never doing enough and they perhaps aren't remembering what sins they are to confess in the confessional or aren't confessing their sins enough at the confessional, or going to church enough, or going on pilgrimages enough. I've told the story before that I was not in a very spiritual frame getting on an airplane. I wanted to put on my headphones and watch a John Wayne movie. I was ready. I was exhausted. I was ready to relax, and I sit down, I look over, and this lady next to me is reading a book, and I looked down and to see what she was reading. I was being nosy, yes. And it was a chapter of a book written by a former PCA minister who had become a Roman Catholic and had written this chapter on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And so I put my headphones away, and I thought, okay... I know what I'm supposed to do here, Lord. And so I struck up a nice conversation with her and, um, and asked her where she'd been. She said, well, I've been on a pilgrimage to Europe. Oh, okay, tell me about that. So she shared with me. She went to go see some, some uh, things, you know, icons and such. And I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And uh, I said, you sound like a very dedicated um, Catholic. She said, uh, well, yes, I am. I said, well, um, tell me about that. She said, well, I go to Mass every single day. I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, I, I lead a women's Bible study. Oh, okay. And she went on and on. She had been on numerous pilgrimages and had shared all these things she was doing. I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? She said, no, please go ahead. I said, do you know that you're going to heaven? And she looked at me and she said, um, well, no, I, I don't but maybe I'm a bad Catholic for saying that. I said, no, you are a consistent Catholic. She said, oh, really? I said, yes, because in your doctrine, 
tell me if I'm wrong about this, but in your doctrine, it's salvation by cooperation. And you will never know if you are doing enough in order to satisfy God, in order to go to heaven. She said, well, yeah, that, that's, that's about right. She said, well, how about you? Do you have assurance that you're going to heaven? I said, yes. She's like, oh. Well, tell me why that is. I said, I would love to tell you why that is. Because Christ paid it all. He paid for every last sin on the cross on Calvary. He left nothing unfinished. In fact, he said, what? It is finished. And so we do have assurance while we struggle with it at times, as I mentioned earlier, every Christian does. While we have our doubts because of remaining indwelling sin, because of suffering, because of the questions that emerge in our hearts as those who are pilgrims on the way and, and struggle at times to trust God, we know that salvation is of the Lord, that He has done it, that Christ has died for our sins. And He's satisfied God's justice. There's nothing else to be done, as it were. And this is what Paul is, is reminding us here. Justification is an act of God's free grace, where He pardons, as it says in this catechism question, all of our sins, not some or most, all of them. He accepts us as righteous or just in His sight before His throne, before His throne of justice. He brings the gavel down and says, not guilty, not because we have done anything to deserve that, but because Christ has died for us and risen for us. And it's all received by faith. Therefore, beloved, being that these things are true, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies but then Paul goes on with the second part to this fourth question. And he says there, look in your Bibles, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. Now, commentators are somewhat divided on, on uh, whether the phrase who is to condemn refers to the God who justifies or to the Christ who died. Who is he, who is Paul referring to here? Well, the first understanding would be that if it is God who justifies, who can condemn us? The second understanding is that if Christ died and was raised and is at God's right hand and is interceding for us, then who can condemn us? Well, the fact is both of these interpretations exhibit the truth and the glory of God. But it is my judgment that the first understanding is the right one that the rhetorical question here refers to God the Father who justifies us by His grace and does so on the grounds of His Son's saving work on our behalf. You see, this first question is wedded, the second question rather, is wedded to the first one. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, I want you to notice here briefly the four stages of Christ's ministry that Paul lists here. And it's like creedal language, too. You know, when we were confessing the Nicene Creed earlier, I was thinking, wow, this sounds like our text for this morning. Look what it says there. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I love the language here where it says more than that. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. If Christ was still in the grave, we would not be forgiven of our sins. We would be, of all people, most to be pitied. Christ died for us on Calvary, but more than that, he was raised, exalted to the right hand of God, and now intercedes for us. Since Jesus Christ, Paul says, died for our sins, was raised for our justification, Romans 4, 25, sits at God's right hand as our advocate and as our great high priest is interceding for us, then who is to lay a charge against us? Who is to condemn? Again, beloved, the gavel in the courtroom of God has already come down. Do you hear it? It has come down for you by grace through faith. Satan's accusations and condemnation are futile, even those of your own conscience. We are justified and thus set free from the law of sin and death. And this is all of grace, beloved, all of grace. Now, it's important to pause and mention that this does not apply to those who are outside of Christ who are still living in sin and unbelief, who are unrepentant, who are worshiping idols and thinking, well, I'll just grab Jesus and put him on the shelf and he can join the panoply of idols in my life and that'll be a kind of safety card for me, an insurance policy. But it doesn't work like that. You see, those who are in Christ turn away from those idols, repent of their sin and put their hope and their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone. For he is our only Savior, our only hope. And Christ will not share our hearts with other gods and other lovers. And so those who are outside of Christ are encouraged even this morning to put their hope and their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But for those who are in Christ, the gavel and the courtroom of God has already come down. Here in these verses, John Murray states that, quote, the vindication of God's people has reached its zenith in this text. In the appeal to God's verdict of justification, every tongue that rises in judgment is silenced. Even the tongue of the doubting Christian who needs to be reminded even this morning that God loves you that Christ died for you, that his presence is with you, that he prays for you, as we will unpack even more next week as we look at the intercession of Christ. But what a deep comfort and encouraging this is to us this morning. What a word of reassurance to those in Christ who are right now fighting to believe that God really loves them for whatever reason or that God has abandoned them. Interestingly, these verses are almost surely an echo of Isaiah chapter 50, verses 7 through 9. Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 9. Quote, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. 
Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Dear ones, God is indeed our vindicator, our helper, and our salvation. And so struggling, perhaps, we might be with an assurance of God's love. I want to exhort you, I want to exhort all of us this morning to remember this gospel. This gospel, which is so beautifully and clearly set forth in Romans chapter 8. Remember that God is for you. Remember all that he has done for you. Remember all that he is currently doing for you and all that he shall do for you. Remember that God gave over his beloved son for you. And remember that in Christ, God has justified you by grace through faith. Remember that right now we groan and we sing through tears, as it were, and sometimes we don't even know what to pray, but God is for us. And one day we shall rejoice, unhindered. One day our weak faith will be turned to sight and every tear will be wiped from our eyes. And so let us, beloved, meditate on these gospel promises from Romans 8 as a, as a, um, a word of encouragement as well. It's interesting that some have believed that preaching needs to be sort of souped up with entertainment and jokes and anecdotes and so forth. And there was one writer in the past who said, you know, we don't need to improve the drama of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, because the doctrine is the drama. What can be more glorious and dramatic and thrilling and astonishing than the God of the universe being for us and in all of these different ways, which we are meditating on this morning from Romans 8. So let these things, beloved, sink into your hearts and sweep away the doubts that God loves you and is for you and is with you. Repent of your sins and abide in Christ through the diligent means of grace. Words, sacraments, and prayer. These are God's ingenious ways of reminding us week after week that we are loved by God and kept by God. The words, sacraments, and prayer. Remember from Isaiah 42.3 that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And again, for those who are here this morning who have never believed the gospel, who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who have never surrendered their lives by grace through faith to King Jesus, who have never repented of, of sin and, and received his forgiveness, I invite you this morning to come to him, to come to him, to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And I would love to speak to you after the service. Come to Jesus so that you too can take comfort in these words. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous text, reminding us of so many important foundational points about the gospel, reassuring us of your love for us, of your care over our lives, of your promises, and of your indwelling spirit and presence. Oh, Father, would you continue to work in our lives as we let these wonderful truths sink into our hearts and into our minds, as we meditate upon them, as we think on them throughout the week and continue to go back to this amazing chapter of your word, Romans chapter 8. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name, our champion.